Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. We're continuing to draw down our our embassy. Uh, we uh, uh, will continue that process. Uh, and we've also been very clear that um, any uh, American citizens who remain in Ukraine should leave now. That's U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken this morning saying that uh, the U.S. feels Russia could invade Ukraine during the current Beijing Olympics. Uh, and any Americans that are still in that country should leave while they still can. Similar messaging was sent to Canadians in the country not that long ago. He didn't give reasons behind the latest security alert, but uh, that's the message. If you want to get out, do it while you still can. Global Affairs Canada yesterday updated their travel advisory to Ukraine, urging Canadians to avoid all travel to Ukraine due to the ongoing Russian threats and the risk of armed conflict and advising anyone already there to leave while commercial means are still available. So the threat of war in Eastern Europe remains a very distinct possibility. Um, we're now several weeks into this heightened tension following the buildup of Russian troops. Now, to this point, it's been a full-on effort by the West to avert a crisis with uh, threats of crippling economic sanctions, um, lots of diplomacy, but clearly, as we see this morning, uh, nothing has been resolved. So let's talk about this situation. We're going to chat with Thomas Hughes. Uh, Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International and Defence Policy at Queen's University in Ontario. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. So, I mean, there's been all kinds of work, there's been all kinds of talk, but just with the latest developments this morning and what we're hearing from the U.S. and from Canada over the past two days, we're still on the brink of a potential conflict in Eastern Europe, right? Absolutely. It's, it, it really is troubling. And the fact that we're at this point in 2022 is is extremely problematic. Um, now, you recently did a piece with Conversation talking about how this is sort of a make or break almost for NATO and, you know, in the West. I mean, we've got sort of this intractable position that we've been on for a couple of weeks now. Just why is it so important for NATO that this doesn't become a full-blown conflict? It's huge. I think there are two points that are, that are really significant in here. The first is, as you pointed out just before, that lots of NATO members have been um, very... Uh, very strong in their condemnation of Russian actions. They've suggested that the uh, invasion of Ukraine or any action against Ukraine would be tremendously uh, difficult. Uh, it would be something that NATO just could not accept. If Russia goes through with that invasion anyway, or even if it's not an invasion, even if they conduct some sort of actions that, that harm Ukraine short of war, it is a very a public demonstration that they don't fully respect NATO's strength or, or indeed NATO's uh, ability and willingness um, to continue to hold those sorts of red lines. So NATO is really waiting there, I think, um, for Russia's next step. And if it doesn't respond appropriately, it's going to be difficult. The other challenge, of course, within that is that whilst NATO has always done a, a very good job of presenting a coherent public front, yeah. 
as you might imagine, within any sort of organisation like that, you have all sorts of conversations going on about priorities uh, and funding and where NATO should be concentrating its resources. So um, this conflict in this particular region of Russia uh, requires some difficult conversations uh, within NATO uh, about where they go from, from here as an alliance. And finally, uh, as a perhaps um, deeper point uh, as part of this conflict, if there is this uh, invasion of Ukraine or action uh, against Ukraine, it really starts to undermine the system of rules that have been put in place to try and prevent this sort of action happening. And without those rules in place, it becomes very difficult for NATO to understand how to operate in this security environment. Okay, so let's go into those uh, again, because I wanted to ask you, like, we always talk about NATO, NATO, NATO says this, NATO does that, NATO says this. It's not unanimous, right? There's a lot of differing positions within NATO as to what the approach should be here. Absolutely. And I think you, you do very well to, to highlight um, that aspect of the discussion. The other important part here, of course, is that Ukraine is not a NATO member. Yeah, so yeah. if... You know, if, if Russia invaded a NATO member, I think it's, it's highly implausible that it occurred. But if they, if they did, then you have NATO's Article 5, which means that NATO will come together and respond to that. If Russia uh, invades Ukraine, well, there's, there's no real system in place. There's no mechanism by which everyone is on the same page necessarily. And we know within uh, NATO, there are countries with very different relationships with Russia. And the impact of NATO's action against Russia will or could also change their sort of bilateral relationship. So they have to be very cautious in there. And when you look at, at countries that, that do border Russia, Poland, Estonia and the like, those countries, for them, it, it is a very real possibility of a Russian invasion. We can say that that is implausible, and it certainly is. But for them, it is a real possibility. Whereas NATO members, say, in, in southern Europe, look at their own security situation and perhaps see a threat from a slightly different direction, whether that's uh, terrorist threats coming through North Africa or the like. So it is a real challenge for, for NATO to coordinate its activities around Ukraine. Um, but as I say, I think so far they've done a truly exceptional job of, of representing a, a very strong consolidated front. And the other one I want to ask you, uh, as you mentioned there, is the end game. What, what NATO's mm -hmm. legitimate options are, because as you say, um, there's either you, you continue to push and push and push until um, Russia backs down or you get conflict, mm -hmm. or you have the choice of coming up with some concessions. Either way, <laughs> something has to happen for this to change. What are NATO's options? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, there, there are an awful lot of options. If I could tell you the, the right option, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. I think it's an incredibly difficult um, balancing act for NATO. I think, first and foremost, uh, NATO has to continue to represent a united... Oh, Thomas? Oh, we lost Thomas. Sarah will work her magic, and hopefully we get him back. In the meantime, though, Sarah, let's take a quick break while you do that, and then we'll be able to chat with him when we come back right after this. All right, so we're talking about the situation in Eastern Europe and the troop buildup um, along the border with Ukraine and, and what might happen there. Chatting with Thomas Hughes uh, before we got disconnected. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International and Defence Policy at Queen's University, Ontario. Thomas, uh, thanks for hanging on for a second. Glad we got you back. 
Oh, no problem at all. They use modern technology and all that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, so we were discussing what options are, are legitimately available to NATO. And as I said, you know, it seems like they're sort of stuck between, okay, either we, we continue to push our hard line and almost, you know, dare Russia to lure us into conflict, or they have to make some concessions to try and avoid it that way. Is there anything else on the table? I mean, what are the options NATO has? So I think to start to answer this question, the easiest point is to say what what option is is not available to NATO. Uh, And that option that is not available is that NATO backs down from its support of its uh, northern and eastern members. Uh, That is extremely important um, if NATO is going to continue as a united alliance. In terms of what it can offer uh, in Russia in return, I think that the face-saving approach here um, requires, unfortunately, requires Ukraine um, to be part of that conversation as well. This is not just a conflict between NATO and Russia. As we talked about, there is uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Yeah. So Ukraine is, has to be part of that, that conversation. So NATO has to be talking to Ukraine. And I think the key aspect here is going to be uh, at least some sort of uh, concession about how troops are distributed within Europe and um, the political status uh, of Ukraine, uh, particularly whether it it leans more towards Russia or or towards Europe. Those are essentially concessions, though, right? I mean, that's kind of what Russia is asking for. Yes, uh, it is, unfortunately. Um, But I think it is about self-determination for Ukraine, and it's supporting that self-determination. I think that's an opportunity to save face for both sides. But I think one of the key conversations in here is that the simple reality, as I touched on before, that Russia and NATO are, are not going to back down in terms of numbers of troops and positioning of troops uh, around Europe. It, that's just part of how they're behaving at the moment. So the question then is, what can be put in place to ensure that those troop dispositions are not seen as the threat? We have both Russia and NATO saying that our troops are not intending to invade anywhere, that they're purely for defence. And we have had a system of uh, what's been called confidence-building measures in Europe for, for a number of years. They haven't been updated recently, and I think they really need to be looked at uh, again. We need to have transparency uh, in Europe. We need to have uh, a common understanding of what the intent is of all parties within that. Um, Last one, and then I'll let you go. Um, Mm -hmm. We keep talking about this, you know, in terms of troops and in terms of war. Um, We've Mm -hmm. already got warnings in Canada from our our cyber agencies saying, you know what, you need to be aware that we could have cyber attacks. I mean, there could be unconventional war that's already happening. I mean, how does that fit into this and complicate the equation? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. And it it complicates it enormously. And I think it also hits the nail on the head of of the way in which we understand warfare has to change. And competition and conflict is not what it was during the Cold War. And in reality, I think it's extremely unlikely that we see Soviet-style thousands of Russian tanks streaming down the streets of Kiev. It, it just doesn't seem like a possibility. However, if Russia's intent is to have a, a degree of political control in Ukraine, then certainly um, they could accomplish that uh, through other other means. Misinformation is another classic approach yeah. to doing that. How could they undermine the, the Ukrainian government, have somebody uh, installed or voted into power in Ukraine who does lean more towards Russia? And again, that, that brings up a really important question, not just for NATO, but for the Canadian government and, and beyond. 
is having a really clear and coherent idea about how to respond to these sorts of things. Because at the moment, we haven't quite caught up to that. We understand that they're a threat. We understand that they occur. But we don't fully understand how we are supposed to respond to that. And that comes back to the rules that I mentioned earlier. When you've got a very clear set of rules for the game, everyone knows how to play it, if you like. Everyone knows what yeah. the costs and benefits are. And what we're seeing potentially with that hybrid or gray zone warfare, however you want to, to describe that, is a situation where um, we need to rethink response and what is appropriate. So it's all in transition, it's all in flux, and this is all happening as that is happening. So uh, I guess we just wait and see how this may go, right? Uh, for us, certainly. Um, I hope that for, for those who have decision-making authority, they are not just waiting and seeing, um, that there are continued efforts going on. I'm sure there are. Fortunately, there are an awful lot of smart people who are, who are involved in, in trying to de-escalate there. Uh, and I think in the end, it is in nobody's interests, really, to have a, a full-scale war. And even below that, war is inherently uncertain. Um, and again, uh, there's no way that I can predict what yeah, exactly. Putin is going to do. But um, I, I think we need to, to continue talking and hopefully, steadily, slowly, tensions will start to decrease. Uh, let's hope so. Thomas, thank you so much. Great insight. Really appreciate you joining us today. Not at all. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Bye Thank bye. you, sir. That is Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International and Defence Policy at Queen's University in Ontario. And as, and as I started the interview, I told you about the latest developments on that front, and uh, they're continuing to seem to get uh, more and more tense. U.S. saying today that Russia could attack during the Olympics, which are, I think they're going for a week now, right? Is it a week? It's got to be. Um, and uh, telling all of their... Um, citizens to get out of Ukraine while you still can, which echoes what the Canadian government told all Canadians still in Ukraine yesterday. Get out while commercial means are still available.